Hello, friends. Hello, 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 friends. A tradition unlike any other. Oh, 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 oh my goodness. In your life have you seen anything like that? There it is. Adam Scott, a life changer. Mashed potato. Here it, here it, here it, here it comes. Welcome back to the 19th Tee Podcast. Trude's with you for tonight's episode. And again, we've called in the relief pitcher, as I just called him before we started recording. Uh, no Marshy tonight. Um, the big fella's unwell. But we've called in the relief pitcher, as I mentioned. Lucas Michelle joins us from Tasmania, where he's been spending uh, a lot of his life in a bulldozer at the moment down at Seven Mile Beach. And we're going to get into all of that and plenty more. But Lucas, thanks so much for joining us as uh, the co-host. I think this is, I was trying to work it out before. I think it's your fifth time on the episode i was trying to think so you're uh you're you're certainly leading the pack in terms of guests <laughs> <laughs> no thanks great to be back uh yeah looking forward to having a little catch up and chat about you know everything golf as you do absolutely mate you're, you're down in tassie as you you mentioned um you're you're spending your time in a bulldozer working on seven mile beach which will absolutely get stuck into to plenty but how are you finding the I guess the change of scenery for yourself, obviously, mm. you know, a hugely accomplished uh, amateur golfer, and and now you're turning your hand in shaping sand mm. into golf courses. Yeah, no, it's been a it's been an awesome experience. Um, it was one of those things that the opportunity came up to to help out constructing the the Seven Mile Beach Golf Course, and having seen pictures of the land that Mike Clayton had sent me, and then um then going on site visits with him to see it uh I knew it'd be pretty special and so you know I obviously still have potential professional golf ambitions um but the opportunity to to help build a golf course of this stature which I know it's it's going to debut very very high I think knowing you know I've been around played a lot of great golf courses and this is a piece of land that's every bit as good as any of the ones I played. So um, knowing the potential of the place, I sort of jumped on that opportunity. So, yeah, as you said, I've been in a bulldozer, um, pretty much spending every day on site down here, shaping fairways and, um, you know, bits and pieces around the place. Probably not not yet the, the important stuff like the greens and bunkers because um, we've got a very experienced guy in Mike DeVries, um, who obviously most famously Kate Wickham, um co-designed that and uh and yeah so yeah it's been great to learn off him and um but yeah he's he's doing the important stuff i'm just still learning how to operate the thing and um i actually feel like i'm getting pretty decent at it now so looking forward to uh yeah getting a little bit more uh responsibility maybe with it and maybe i'll get to shape some important stuff in the next couple of months it's all important even fairways mm-hmm. are important and tee boxes. Yeah. Everything's important in a golf course. We'll uh, we'll dive into Seven Mile Beach very shortly, but we should run through a couple of results um, and we'll start on the Aussie tour at home over here at the WA Open, which was quite exciting because uh, I spent uh, four days out there. Um, I was caddying for David Michaluzzi, which was a lot of fun. I learned a, a great deal and we're going to have him on for a bit of a review and he can tell me all the things I did wrong for him. But uh, Braden Becker, who... He's a WA boy. He uh, he got the chockies um, in quite dramatic fashion, and and I'm going to assume, Lucas, that you've probably been in a uh, in a bulldozer. You may not have seen 
uh, the the dramatic fashion and correct me if I'm if I'm wrong here. But so what's happened is uh, Nathan Barbieri has um, shot his his second shot long of the green to the fringe at the back, and um, and Braden has then shot his fourth shot as a wedge, flown it long. It's hit Nathan's ball and rolled back wow. to a rolled back to a foot for a tap in par. Um, My God. And then Hayden Hopewell's three putted and Braden Becker takes a one shot win. Um, wow. So, so quite, quite a remarkable set of circumstances there. A big crowd out at Royal Freo. Uh, Hayden Hopewell, obviously the winner last year plays out of Royal Freo. So um, showed that his, his uh, game was no fluke last year, but um, yeah, quite, quite dramatic fashion um, for, for Braden there. And then of course, you know, we head up to the uh, NT PGA this week, which is the season season ender, Braden Becker rises uh, about six hundred spots in the world, courtesy of that win at the WA wow. Open. I might add. Um, Jed Morgan's wrapped up the order of merit, courtesy of his win at the Aussie PGA, one hundred ninety thousand under his belt. Blake Windred one hundred twenty five thousand. It is still mathematically possible for Blake to fall out of that top three, but very unlikely. Mm-hmm. But then it's a bit interesting with Andrew Dote and Jimmy Papadatos are pretty equal. Anthony Quayle obviously spending a bit of time in Japan. He he's still. Um, a possibility. I think he's coming back to Australia. Quayle, not too sure. But um, I was going to. Uh, I was going to pose the question to you: the the money earnings side of mm. things being the, um, uh, I guess, being the criteria for the order of merit. Is it time for us to potentially explore a points based order of merit, or is money still the way to be going? Because having a few conversations yeah. with guys on the ground this week, there was a sense of. Um, not wanting to take anything away from Jed and his accomplishment at the the Aussie PGA, but after that, I mean, hasn't had the most consistent season. So mm. essentially, is winning the order of merit off the back of winning one mm. tournament. Is it potential that we should look at a points based system so that when amateurs win tournaments, um, they can still accumulate points? I mean, it's there's there's so mm. many different different ways. Is that, have you got any thoughts on that? Obviously, you know, having spent a bit of time in and around the the, the tour yeah. itself. Yeah, I, I think I, I actually haven't thought about it myself, but I think that would make sense because when you've got the structure of the Australian tour is that there's generally a handful of events that, that give a lot of money out. And then there's sort of those tier two events where there's not a lot of money. And I think currently the structure, there might be a tier two money list or in the past there has been both a tier one and a tier two money list. Um, and that has allowed players to get um, like a better rank for uh, the next year's tour um, if they play well in the tier tour events. But I think probably a points-based system because it might actually promote some guys to actually go out and play the smaller events as well because, Mm. you know, getting guys down, you know, some of the better players maybe to go play um, an NTPGA. You know, this year it's quite important. Obviously the NTPGA, it's the Mm. last event of the season, so you get a lot of guys out there. But generally it sits like sort of right in the middle of the year and guys might be out in Japan or Europe or wherever, and they might not have a need to play an NTPGA. But if, if there's a few, few more points on offer relative to the the prize money, which obviously is, is less, um, they might be enticed to, to go play it. So that could be a good idea. Yeah. I hadn't personally thought about it a lot, but I assume that's what the, uh, the FedEx cup, mm. the strategy there is because obviously a lot of the events there, like the, the fall season events still hold full 
FedEx ranking points. And so that kind of gets a few guys out early in the season to try and, you know, lock up their card before the the big guys come out, the big guns yeah, come out right. later in the year. Yeah, I think it's I think it's just worth something, uh, you know, potentially exploring whether that's because um, I, I think even when we look at uh, the great work that the TPS events had this year with um, uh, obviously you know, having male and female players playing alongside each other and um, and Hannah Green obviously winning that fantastic event. It wasn't necessarily relative to the order of merit either. So obviously Hannah took the full prize money, which still impacted the order of merit. So mm. like uh, the top ranked male in that wasn't getting full credit for finishing on yeah. top of the, the the tour for that week. So I think there's some tweaks that can be made, but it'll be interesting mm. to see if that's something that they look to explore mm. in the next uh in the next couple of years but it's going to be an exciting finish to the to the end of the year so um yeah looking looking forward to who skewers that third uh dp world tour card speaking of the dp world tour uh let's have a quick mention of that because this has been a long time coming for me lucas i've been very very hot on this man adri are now uh i've been pr- singing his praises for many many months um and just hoping that he was to get over the line. And it finally happened this week at the Catalonia Championship. Um, there were six playoff holes, I believe. They went up and down 18, five times before they finally moved to 17. I think there needs to be something written into the laws of the game that we can't go up and down 18 <laughs> over <laughs> and over. Because particularly at, at an event like this where, where the par four doesn't is pretty standard, right? Like. Mm. Everyone was making pars, and then we moved one. We moved to, to seventeen, which I think was a par three, and then bang, straight away we get a result. Like, yeah. should we just go to the most risk reward hole, regardless of if that's eighteen or not? I know there's, I know there's broadcast implications, and the cameras are all set up there. But from an architecture yeah. point of view, surely like risk reward would make for greater TV. Yeah, it kind of speaks to you know we we sometimes talk about half par holes being the most interesting. So a hole that not doesn't necessarily fit the definition of a par four or a par five or a par three for that matter. So like a short par four, for instance, um, a short par three um, or um, sort of like a mid um, sort of between a four and a five, like a 460, 70 meter hole. Um, Yeah. Generally that's going to give you a nice spread of outcomes and whittle things down pretty quickly. But yeah, you can understand obviously playing the 18th, you know, all the crowds already set in set in place and the yeah. cameras already out there and you know european tour is big but it's not it's not the pj tour so they probably can't move things around as easily so probably makes sense but yeah you're right um sort of telling that they change the hole and straight away you get an outcome so the pga tour uh i didn't catch a lot of this this week the mexico open at vedanta uh john Rahm was the winner and, and unsurprising with a uh, strength of field ranking of 151, which is pretty woeful. One of the weakest fields that I've seen for quite some time. The only name that other, the only other name that really jumps out at me is Tony Finau and, and surprisingly or unsurprisingly, he finished uh, in second place T2 alongside Kurt Kitayama and Brandon Wu. I mean, it kind of just feels like this, if John Rahm didn't win this, it would be a disappointment, obviously going in as the highest ranked player and, mm. and no disrespect to the other players on tour. But I mean, there's a there's a big gap between John Rahm and the rest of these players. I, I just wonder if this is going to be the beginning of something for, for John Rahm. Obviously, you know, he's just been 
so uber consistent for a long time and 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 that win at the US Open was fantastic but uh, mm. I think everyone golf fans more broadly would maybe like to see a little more out of John I don't know at yeah. majors I, th- I think he's competed well at majors but mm. yeah I he probably maybe deserves one or two by the by this time yeah he's um he's golf lately probably like the last I guess since the US Open's been it's been a little bit flat like not a lot of you know guy that probably should be winning a, a lot more than he does i think but obviously like you said he's he's quite consistent he's probably been a little bit of in a bit of a lull um i mean obviously he was so hot around memorial and then uh the us open obviously memorial was <laughs> I, heard, I saw some things on twitter it was like the only thing that could stop john Rahm winning winning tomorrow was a positive covid test yeah that's what happened well, last time well although to be fair he almost did you know, the putter was very cold from what I understand um, yeah. that last round. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. Hope- hopefully we see him kick on. Um, you know, he does deserve more wins. I think they said he's only got seven official PGA Tour wins, which, you know, if you told me that and having not known the number, I probably would have expected him to be at least 12 or 13 by now. So, uh, but he is young. Yeah. He, he is. I think we forget that yeah. because he certainly looks a lot older than what he what he yeah. is um i i think you know you look at his master's results right going back to 2018 fourth t9 t7 t5 and then this year t27 and i think people maybe got a little disappointed in that but had a fantastic run at the majors last year t5 masters t8 pga championship won the us open and t3 at the open so um mm. he's certainly still a big game player i think he's just potentially been a little bit out of it for for a couple of months, um, but I'm sure we'll we'll see him uh, back and raring to go at the PGA Championship. Lastly, last one to mention, uh, we did have an Australian winner um, around the world this week, which was fantastic to see. And um, regular listeners to this this show will know that I am a big trophy guy. I really get around what the trophies are handed out, and the trophy that Harrison Endicott received for winning uh, the Huntsville Championship in Alabama on the Corn Ferry Tour by five strokes was elite. I don't know what Huntsville does. I don't know if that's the place, uh, but it was a, a, a large rocket, um, and that was sick. I absolutely loved that. Didn't quite pip the, uh, the, the NT PGA Championships a crocodile head skull, uh, but this was great. Um, Harrison Endicott obviously being you know, pretty talented, uh, as as we know, um, he turned pro. I think back in I think maybe twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen. He, he lost in a playoff at the Vic Open a few years ago. Um, he he lost his mum to ovarian cancer when he was nineteen, um, and then you know just has gone on to play some fantastic golf and and really looks like if he continues the way that he's going, he's he's going to have a PGA Tour card. And he was quite emotional after the the round, as you would be, but. Um, you've obviously played a bit of golf with Harrison. I mean, maybe mm. you can kind of contextualize this a little bit, bit for us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Harrison was obviously a really well um, accomplished amateur in Australia. Um, certainly, won a handful of those national ranking events, uh, and I think he probably turned pro maybe three or four years ago. So he's been a little bit quiet since. Like I haven't sort of sort of a guy I almost forgot about really. Like there's, there was so much been so much talent come through the amateur ranks there's a lot of guys that just sort of you know 
they go a little quiet, but I mean, it was great to see him go out there and win. And I just had a look up that trophy. The, uh, it's the George C. Marshall Space Flight Center located Sick. in Huntsville, Alabama. So it's Sick. the NASA, NASA center where they develop uh, the Apollo rockets. How so, good is that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, obviously awesome to see um, Harrison win that. And yeah, I think it sets him up really nicely. Hopefully he can have a really solid finish to the season and wrap up one of the 25 cards that are uh, not, not have to go through the finals. Yeah. I can't. I think one of the things that kind of stood out to me, and this is a bit of a tangent here, uh, spending four days at the WA Open and, and obviously, you know, caddying for David and, and seeing him up close. But also we played with uh, with Brett Rankin. We played with uh, Doug Klein and just hanging around a few other guys. And then Minwoo Lee was on the, uh, on the driving range. It was so obvious, like, how good a ball striking all those players have. And, like, it just... I think I realized it, but I didn't realize it until I was actually looking at it. Like it's amazing to see guys regardless. I think it's made it more impressive for me now to see someone like Harrison go from Australia playing out of Avondale, I think was yeah correct. Yeah. yeah. A, a kid to go from Avondale over to the States and mm-hmm. win on the corn ferry tour. Like, yes, it's the second level down, but like the corn mm-hmm. ferry tour has a lot of really, really, really good players on it. Like, yeah, it's, you can make incredible. the argument the Corn Ferry Tour is almost the second strongest tour in golf. Like mm. with like European tours, very very strong, but a lot of the time it's top heavy. Whereas the Corn Ferry Tour is really deep, and so I actually think the Corn Ferry might be deeper than the the European Tour, uh, but just doesn't have the, the the star power. But um, yeah, you know if you know. Obviously, as I'm sort of thinking about, you know, maybe I turn pro, maybe I'm doing that. The last place I'd want to try and uh, go is the Corn Ferry Tour because there's just so many good players there. I'd certainly be sort of aiming towards either the Asian Tour or the European Tour or maybe Japan because I just think the opportunities um, are a little little better, a little, little less competitive there. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's a good good segue to to talking about Seven Mile Beach. You were, you were mentioning it before, spending a lot of time on the on the dozer. And um, I was mm. going to ask you, what's your what is the plan? Are you, are you going to turn attention to architecture and following the footstep of Clates and and DeVries and or are you, is golf still the plan? What where are you at at the moment? Uh, still, still really figuring things out. I mean, there's some really good opportunities at the moment with the architecture. Um, COVID's actually been a little bit of a boom for golf, as mm. we're probably mostly aware. Like a lot of people have have had have picked up the sport and you know have had a little bit of extra time um, working from home and all of that. So um, a lot of clubs are you know pretty flush with cash, and there's also some opportunities overseas as well with um, Clayton DeVries and Pont, who uh, that's who I'm working for at the moment. And so I'm sort of at the moment, just, I guess, making the most of those opportunities. Um, I obviously still think that it would be nice to, to turn pro and play professional golf, but um, yeah, in the short term, I'm, I'm sort of focusing on the golf architecture, getting as much experience as I can. And seven mile beats is not, it's not, there's not a better place to really start getting that experience. It's basically a big sand pit where I can, mess around in the bulldozer and not, not really screw anything up. So it's a great place to learn and um, 
learning plenty from guys like Mike DeVries and Mike Clayton, um, who are really obviously like the top of their field. Um, you know, I'm spending every day with Mike DeVries getting constant feedback on, on what I'm doing, how I'm operating the machine. And he's a, he's a big bulldozer guy. He does everything in a bulldozer. He does bunkers, does greens, does everything. So um, getting plenty of feedback from him on, you know, what I'm doing wrong and occasionally a thumbs up if I'm doing something right. So um, yeah, it's, it's been a great learning experience down here. Uh, you mentioned before um, it's going to make seven mile beach is going to make a big splash in Australian golf. I think um, obviously the, the top hundred rankings were released the other day from Australian golf digest and unsurprisingly Royal Melbourne was at the top. And the question was asked, is it ever going to be knocked off? And I think the short answer is no, mm. right? Obviously you've played it uh, a lot more than, than I have. And you've played in that sand belt a lot yeah. more. And, and, and we had plates on the show a few weeks back and we asked him a similar question of like, how how good can seven mile beach be like, where, mm. where is it going to land in the rankings? Is, is it a top 20 course in Australia? Because I think there's been very few courses. I can't really think of many that have received as much attention in mm. its infancy phase as what seven mile beach has maybe Sandringham links got a lot because I guess of its relationship to and proximity to Royal mm. Melbourne. But like, I think, yeah, Everyone's talking about Seven Mile Beach. If you if you're into golf and you're into golf architecture, that's all anyone's talking about. Yeah, yeah. I think um, there is a there is a lot of hype around it, um, and you know, Matt Goggins cautious of not trying to do too, too much with that because you know you don't want people seeing everything and feeling like they know you know what every single hole looks like on the golf mm. course before they get there. You, you want some of them, some of the experiences of of playing the golf course to be a surprise. But at the same time, I think the hype certainly warranted. It's probably, you know, as good of a piece of land I've seen for it to put a golf course on. I haven't been to Cape Wickham. Um, I really, that's a place I really want to go. I think that, that had some, you know, good hype behind it when that was yep. sort of getting built. And I'd say probably the last course to have a similar amount of hype was probably that. Um, but it's, you know, that was 2013, you know, it's a different time now. You've got social media, everyone can, you know, find photos of Seven Mile Beach, you know, everywhere because, you know, we've been posting photos as much as we can. But, um, yeah, I think the hype's warranted. I think it's an incredible piece of land. Um, but, yeah, we don't want to give too much away of, of everything. We want people to come here and, and see see things they haven't seen on on Instagram and Twitter. So we're, we're cautious of that. What is it about the land that makes it so special? Because obviously there's some great photos on uh, Instagram, which you've, which you've taken mm. and, and posted there. And, and I think to the untrained eye, and I, and I certainly include myself in, in that category, it can be difficult to envision what a golf course is going to look like in that piece of land because it's just hills and shrubs and you kind of go, oh, I could sort of envision that a little bit, but like, what makes it so special is it being on the ground now can you kind of articulate that yeah i think it's i would describe the ground as um very linksy so um and you'll be familiar with a golf course like the cut yeah um so the cut is you know it's got quite heaving sand dunes um melbourne people maybe a little bit more like the mornington 
peninsula, um, you know, the national or somewhere like that. So it's got quite heaving sand dunes, but the whole golf course is built kind of on a tilted plane that faces the ocean. Right. So pretty much from every hole, you're, you're looking at water, which is obviously never a bad thing. Mm. Um, and it's quite a pretty beach as well. But um, yeah, the views are beautiful, obviously the water and you've got Mount Wellington and a few hills around Hobart sort of in the background. You've got some backdrop of on a few holes of some pine trees, which um, that can be, a, that's a different look for Australia because, you know, we don't really have, any golf courses with pine trees on them that I can, you know, that are certainly in the top, you know, maybe Royal Adelaide's the only one I can think of. That's one of the top courses that has a few pine trees on it. Um, so that's something different. Um, but yeah, just the topography is just incredibly varied. You've got huge dunes, you've got small dunes, you've got really rumpled stuff near the ocean. So as you sort of traverse the site, with the routing, you kind of experience a lot of the different, um, elements of the routing that uh, takes you through those different areas. Um, so, yeah, it's it, it is a it's a really good piece of land, and um, you know, there's almost no better that I've seen certainly in Australia and even around the world. It kind of reminds me maybe a little bit of a place like Royal County Down, um, but I'd say it's a you know it's a, you got probably more ocean views and the back nine at Royal County Down. You don't really see the ocean at all, and there's a big dune. That kind of obstructs a lot of the views from the front line as well. So, um, but in terms of the scale of the property, I'd say it's somewhat similar to Royal County Down, which is not a bad thing given that's you know in the top five or so courses in the world. And I think well, the big difference would be the accessibility, right? <laughs> you try and go well, play Royal yeah. County Down, and I think you're going to be pushing shit uphill. Yeah, yeah, it'll be a little bit cheaper as well. I think yeah. you, you know you can get on those places as an international, but it'll cost you an arm and a leg, whereas yeah. Seven Mile Beach, we're hoping to, you know, probably put it somewhere in that Barnboogle Dunes price range to make it very accessible. And um, in terms of access, uh, you know, it's a golf course that's going to be 10 minutes from Hobart Airport, which has got direct flights from all the capital cities in Australia. So, um, yeah, it's like going to be super, super accessible, which is one of the most exciting things about it, I think, in that it's in a major city like Hobart, which is a really, really cool town. And I've had a really good time here and I'm uh, looking forward to exploring it a little bit more in the few months that I've got left. There's a, there's a course in Tasmania that's always fascinated me called Ratho Farm. I don't know if you've heard of this. Have you been out there? You... I've heard of it. Yeah. yeah. What's well, it? I think it's the oldest yes. golf course in Australia. Yeah. Yes. But I, I haven't been out there. Yeah. I reckon you'd love it. I reckon you'd mm. absolutely love it. I think I, my question was going to be, does once Seven Mile Beach opens, uh, if it wasn't already, does it make Tasmania Australia's best public golf destination? By the time you you know you got Barnbergle, Eagle Farm, uh, sorry, um, Ratho oh Farm. my god, Ratho Farm, Eagle Farm. <laughs> what the fuck's that? That's a race course, isn't it? In <laughs> yeah. Queensland, <laughs> been watching too much of the horses. Jesus, yeah, apparently, um, Ratho Farm. You've got, uh, I think you can get. You, I think you can get onto Royal Hobart if you if you yeah. play your cards right. You have Tasmania. Yeah. There's, um, I mean, what you've got Cape Wickham. Um, yeah. You're going to have Seven Mile. Like it just seems like you're going to have a, a a really really good bunch of courses, all within yeah. like a three hour drive. Whereas Melbourne and the Sand Belt will clearly have better golf for for mm. lack of a term, but the accessibility. Like I can't yeah. just rock up and, and walk on a PK. 
or, or no. any of the others, right? So no, you're right. Like in your mind, yeah. does it kind of just stand out as the, the clear favourite? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, Tassie's, yeah, you know, with Bamboo, Will Seven Mile and then a short flight to, to King Island, as well as, you know, Tassie Golf Club, Royal Hobart, the ones you mentioned. Um, there's some really good accessible options there. The only the only place I can think that really compares is obviously the Mornington Peninsula. You've got a few courses. Some of them are private, but a place like Portsea you can get on uh, fairly easily. It's sort of like semi-private. And then obviously St. Andrews Beach, the Dunes, uh, the courses at um, Moodle Links. So that would be the only spot where you've got a real condensed area of golf that might compete. But, um, yeah, the quality of, I mean, with the two – two plus sort of a half courses at Farm Boogle with the the new Boogle run. Mm. Um, and then Seven Mile, which, you know, I reckon give it five years and there probably will be two, maybe three golf courses at Seven Mile Beach, it looks yeah. like. So, um, yeah, it's it's certainly going to be a bit of a public golf hotspot, I think, down, down here. Yeah, Clates mentioned that there was certainly future plans for for a second or, or even third mm-hmm. golf course, which will be exciting. I guess what's the what's been the direction from from the team at, at um, well from Clates and, and Mike DeVries mm-hmm. that you've been obviously working very closely with around um, moving Earth because I know obviously uh, you're obviously spending a lot of time in a bulldoze, but I think there's mm-hmm. <clears throat> there's something romantic about. Um, a natural golf course that doesn't have any earth move, right? Like it's this fantasy dream that we yeah. all have to find this perfect piece of land and it's like whack some grass down and away we go, right? But in in reality, that's not the case. Like what's, no. is there, is the team trying to uh, kind of invent holes and, and shape to be the holes or just working with the land that's kind of there? Yeah, that's sort of been one of the areas I think where I've probably learned the most. So, it's like I was sort of explaining, it's a very um, sort of wild and dramatic piece of ground. So it's probably not what you describe as like perfect for golf in the sense of, in the sense that you couldn't just cut some grass and, and play like maybe St. Andrews or one of the subtler links courses, you know, Port Marnock or somewhere like that. So it's got some really uh, dramatic topography um and if you were to just cut try and grow grass and cut it on there it would for starters it would be probably impossible to to grow grass on some of the slopes because they're just so severe um and secondly the walk around the site would just be like you'd be buggered (laughs) (laughs) yeah because it's just you know it's up up and down so we've worked really hard on softening a lot of the contour um particularly the areas where you're walking and playing golf, um, but also trying to make them look as natural as possible and tying into the surrounding landscape. So the the ideal would be for you to come play in, you know, a couple of years time and look at it and go, wow, they really just moved hardly anything here, didn't yeah. they? Yeah. When in, you know, in reality, a lot has to be moved to really make that experience as best as possible for the golfers that are playing because yeah, if we were just to let, to leave it, you know, there'd be balls collecting in hollows everywhere and everyone would be, you know, playing from divots all the time and every second shot would be blind and, you know, it just wouldn't be as good as it could be. Um, but yeah, the focus is definitely on what you talked about in creating something that's natural. Um, but obviously 
making it look natural when in reality there's a little bit more work going on than you'd think. But um, there's certainly some areas on the course I was sort of saying before where some of the rumpled terrain um, in spots is really ideal for golf, particularly the stuff, the low stuff sort of nearer the coast. Um, there'll be very little moved on, you know, holes like 15 maybe. It'll be a lot less or 10 um, just because they play through some of the subtler ground, nine's another one. So, um, yeah, there'll be spots where we we leave almost everything intact. Um, and I think they'll be really, really cool golf holes in their own right. But um, I certainly think on top of that, you know, some of the stuff where we've had to move a lot, the end result is something that's so super dramatic that, you know, it makes moving all that dirt and all that time in a bulldozer worth it. So, um, yeah. Can you picture the outcome? Can you picture like the final product? Of maybe of maybe not of the whole thing, but of individual yeah. holes. Can you? Yeah, we've got we've probably at this point. You know, we're in early May. We've probably got we've been on site for well, I've been on site for about three months. Um, Mike's only been shaping for maybe four months, but we've got roughly eight holes that are shaped now um, in, in a rough state. They're not they're not irrigated. So what happens is you rough things in. And then um, we've got the superintendent. He's going to get his crew to install the irrigation. And at that point, you can start grassing. So once the irrigation goes in, there's, they make a bit of a mess. You know, we were digging trenches and that. So we got to clean all that up, get the green and the, the surrounding areas to be really, you know, perfect for, for putting seed down. And then we can um, seed it and water it and start growing grass. So, um, yeah, we've got eight holes in the ground. And, you know, on those eight holes, you can really, you can see what they're going to look like. Um, but we're not far now. We'll probably start getting some grass down on on those those holes in the next few weeks. Um, so it won't be long and we'll start seeing a bit of seed popping, which that'll be exciting. Because, yeah. Um, yeah, we haven't seen any green grass growing in the fairways <laughs> other than a little bit of marum, which is just like a beach grass. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it'll be exciting to see some, some nice fescue um, turf growing in the next couple of weeks. What do you think the playability is going to be like for the public, right? Like obviously this is so highly touted as we've spoken about. There's a heap of people talking about it. And I think one of the things that kind of stood out, obviously talking to Clates about this was that he, he really does want it to be playable for someone like me as a high handicapper in the twenties to, but for someone like yourself, who's, well, like you know, a very, very good golfer. What are you playing off at the moment? Plus what? <laughs> uh, plus four, maybe. Yeah, yeah something right? like that. I haven't played a lot of golf, but, <laughs> but, but I'm just holding it there. Yeah, but I think it's it's always again, it's always this pipe dream of architects. Is it is that a, you know we want it to be playable for the high handicapper, but challenging for the really good golfer? And it's like mm. I think when you walk onto to some golf courses, is that perhaps that may not necessarily be true. It was always a pipe dream that we thought, yes, that we're going to do this in the back of our mind. But like, how, how do you kind of balance that when you're working on the ground and you're seeing it? Are there, there, there holes where you go, this is going to be a genuinely hard shot for a 20 handicapper. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough. I mean, everyone obviously aspires to some sort of goal like that, unless you're building the next, you know, I don't know, tournament course that's never going to, you know, see too many, crappy golfers but um yeah I'd, I'd say you know it's like i was just saying it's a dramatic piece of ground so 
by definition, there's going to be some pretty demanding golf shots on it. But at the same time, you know, we're, we're very mindful that this is a public access golf course. So yeah. we do want your, you know, everyday hacker to be able to come out, enjoy it. You know, you know they're going to lose a couple of balls. The marum grass is going to get pretty thick. If you've played, been to Barnboogle, um, you know, that place is covered in marum, but you know, there'll be plenty of wit. You know, you might lose a handful of balls, but we just hope that, you know, there's enough enjoyable golf and the focus is on making enjoyable golf, not, not you know, impossibly difficult golf. Um, but yeah, there should be enough enjoyable golf for your fairly ranked beginner to, to have, a, have a good time. And, and you know, it's a, it's a beautiful place. The views are great. So even if they can barely hit a ball, even just walking around, it's going to be a nice experience. But um, yeah, certainly we're mindful of that. And um, I think, I think, yeah, your beginners are still going to have a good time. Um, we're certainly focusing on getting some tees forward in some you know good positions where people are not having to have any dramatic forced carries over you know places where they're just going to be topping it into into crap um we've avoided that so basically the whole golf course is going to be kind of like a continuous loop of short grass um which mike devries kind of that's his vision for it so no really defined teeing areas just kind of like a strip of turf that kind of runs through the whole golf course which will be a really cool idea i don't think i've seen a golf course that does that truly like that um so i'm looking forward to obviously seeing the grassing happen because i i can kind of see it in my mind but interested to see how it all eventuates when um when we do get grassing width and angles obviously two buzzwords Mm of of golf architecture right i think um i i think particularly over the last four days spent out at royal free i like i've i've finally it finally all clicked to me width and angles i think when you you're like me and you play public golf um a lot of the time public golf courses aren't designed by teams like Clayton DeVries and Pont and and Mm. people like yourself who are working on them. They are sort of just slapped down and away they go and, and angles and, and lines don't necessarily matter a lot of the time on, there's certainly some angles that help, don't get me wrong, but I don't Mm. think they're ever designed in a particular way, but has that been a focus, I guess, particularly in the context of the distance debate? Uh, which is yeah. another, another golf buzzword, the distance <laughs> debate. I mean, has all of that sort of been either in the back of your mind when, you know, you're giving advice back to, to the team or is that something that Mike's been focused on? Like how has all of that kind of come about? Yeah, I think that's always something that we're thinking about giving, just really just giving people options. Yeah. You know, when they're standing on the tee, they need to have multiple playing strategies that make them think Um, it's making the golfers think, you know, making it a a cerebral test rather than just a test of pure execution. And um, you know, it's going to be windy, which, which helps because when it's, when it's a windy site um, it's different. Every shot's different because you're always thinking about how much is this wind going to take off? All right. Then from there, where am I aiming, et cetera. So I think, you know, it's always back of mind, but um, yeah, I think that's just something that that I think our team, Clayton DeRees and Pont, and I think most, yeah, like you said, most sort of the, the top architects in the world are really thinking about that sort of stuff. Um, but we also think that 
the golf course if it if they wanted to host you know a top level event in Hobart I think you know it should be top of the list for a venue because it's close to town and we're building a course it's it's going to be off the back tees it's going to be a beast like it'll be a big golf course I don't, I don't we don't really know how long it's going to be that's sort of the nature of how we work is we kind of tweak things in the field a lot and so um you know at the moment we're thinking well you know it might be a past 73 <laughs> but you know for tournaments it'll be a 72 probably because there's um you know there might be a par five that becomes a par four but at the moment we're sort of looking at it as like well the holes are probably better if it's a past 73 and you know that's a little bit of a an odd one i can't think of too many past 73s that are in the you know top rankings of golf courses um but um yeah it's certainly going to be a big golf course and obviously with with an angles on my on our mind uh, we want the best players in the world to to be able to to pick and choose their options if they do happen to come down and play a tournament at seven mile beach it'd be pretty cool to see something like an australian open Mm. played over the course at some point i agree i think it'd just be great to have a tour stop in tasmania to be honest we were talking about this the other week like you know it's as we were saying before it's arguably the the best public golf facilities in the country and we don't have a tour stop in tasmania and i think think that's that's criminal so hopefully um hopefully Mm. that changes i guess in terms of um uh, obviously you're talking about the 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 severity of the land and the slopes and the mounds in my head and you you don't have to talk me off the ledge here i'm thinking like tobacco road right (laughs) like yeah to that level is that kind of where like like can you kind of place it in terms of mm-hmm. uh where it's going to end up is yeah. it going to can you give us a, another course that we might know that would you know is it going to be yeah. a, a bamboogle type setup obviously not having been out there but you know yeah i think probably like most aussie golfers the most similar sort of look and feel would probably be bamboogle um because it is a links course it's on the ocean in terms of the scale of the features, Barnboogle's got a bit of everything that, that Seven Mile has, I'd say. Um, the difference is Seven Mile probably, that, so the dune ridge that Barnboogle's on is quite narrow. And so it's very much sort of like an out and back, out and back um, routing with both nines. Um, whereas, yeah, Seven Mile's got a lot more width to the property. And so... Um, we, we're not sort of constrained to having holes running, you know, in sort of such a linear direction. So um, there is a bit more width to the property in that way. And so, um, yeah, but I, I'd say in terms of scale of, of features, probably not too different to, to Barnboogle, maybe, maybe a little bigger and brawnier in spots, but, um, but yeah. I just feel like this project is right in your wheelhouse. Like <laughs> you just must be so pumped to be working on it. Like yeah. you love your golf architecture. You you love your golf more broadly. And mm. I guess to be, you know, playing in the sand of a site mm. that's going to become one of the best public access golf courses in the country is must be like a dream come true for someone obviously like yourself where, you know, COVID certainly halted your career in a lot of ways, but, you know, you've picked up mm. a, a, another passion. Like you must just be – yeah working on it yeah i um i actually remember seeing photos of the site in about 2011 or 2012 i remember uh, yeah probably 2012 i remember clates posted something on twitter 
And I remember seeing it and being like, oh, that looks awesome. And, you know, every year I'd, or every, you know, every few months I'd ask Clayton, oh, any news of Seven Mile Beach, any news of Seven Mile Beach. And then it was funny, eventually kind of started, you know, Clayton would say, oh, yeah, I think it's, it's going to happen. I think it's going to happen. This is sort of like 2019. And then um, I actually played with Matt Goggin at the Australian Open in 2019, just after I won the midair. And coincidentally, we paired and we got chatting. And um, and then, you know, a few weeks later, uh, Goggin rang up Clates and said, yeah, like green light, let's do it. Then obviously COVID hits, but they got Mike DeVries down um, in yeah early 2020 to, to figure out the routing with Clates. And then I sort of started getting involved later later that year so um yeah it's sort of it's been something that's been on the radar for quite some time and uh you know if, if i look back to 2012 when i was looking at photos of that course and someone told me oh you know you're going to be building it i would yeah. have you know, said you're pulling my leg like <laughs> yeah it's, it is a dream come true so um it's an incredible experience and the superintendent anthony Toogood said to me he said you know, it's a funny one. Like, you know, I've been in the industry for 40 years or how long it's been in it, 30 something years. And um, actually I'm probably doing a disservice to his age there. We'll say 30 years. Um, and, you know, this will be the best project I'm ever part of. Huh. And then he said to me that, you know, you're just starting and this will also probably be the best project yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. you're part of, which, you know, he wasn't trying to be, you know, mean or cynical about my yeah. opportunities potential yeah. future opportunities but he's probably right yeah um it's an amazing one to start with so um yeah i'm just sort of soaking up the experience and enjoying it as best i can and looking forward to what the next few months has in has in store for yeah hopefully getting this thing close to finished what have you learned have you uh, you must have just been like a sponge around these guys right like Obviously, Clates mm. is Clates mm. is a legend of Australian golf, and he's done some fantastic stuff architecturally. And and Mike DeVries strikes me as one of the most uh, most smart, which is a stupid way to say it, the smartest <laughs> golfing minds out there. Just from things that I've yeah. read and and things that I've seen with him, just the way that he kind of articulates yeah. and and he's mm. very good at putting his vision into words and, and yeah. i so i guess long story short like what what have you learned from from yeah. those guys well obviously like clates was a guy that i've had a lot to do with for a number of years i when i joined metro uh, metropolitan golf club in melbourne in 2012 where mike's a member we soon became pretty good friends so we'd play golf together all the time and um learned obviously a lot about the theory of golf course design um but when it comes down to um, construction and actual, um, you know, putting things into practice, Mike sort of takes a little bit more of a backseat and yep. that's where Mike DeVries is, is the expert. And so um, I spent a little bit of time with DeVries in, uh, in the US in 2020 on a project he was, he was doing. And uh, that was me escaping COVID in Australia <laughs> and, and yeah. prepping for my tournaments, actually, that the US Open and yes. Masters. Yeah. I spent spent time with him there. But um, I got a little bit of hands-on experience there, mainly just you know holding a rake and digging trenches with the, the drainage crew and um, you know helping fill bunkers full of sand with the, the, the contractor. So it was very basic stuff, but got to see sort of boots on the ground construction. Um, so I learned a lot there. But 
Um, I'd say DeVries, I've learned probably the most, other than construction stuff, probably the most area, areas that I've learned is more about um, the routing process and how a golf course almost tells a story as you, as you walk it and how important the routing and the walk around of a golf course is versus the individual holes. Like, yes, the individual holes on a golf course might be great, but how do they connect to one another? And that's something that I probably didn't appreciate until um, Mike and I have, you know, have had like, lots and lots of chats about this sort of stuff. And he, he really focuses on the routing experience and making that um, super uh, interesting for, for golfers as they play the golf course. And then I'd say probably on top of that, um, his attention to detail is like insane. Like, he just, he'll, you know, if he could, he'd build all this golf course himself with a bulldozer and he, he could do it. Um, he could totally do it. Yeah. You know, we're just here helping him. Uh, but if, if he could, he would. And, you know, maybe he'd get that extra half a percent out of it, if, you know, if he did, because I think it would probably be better. But, you know, we're, we're still here offering um, input. And I think that'll obviously helps get a, get a result as well. But, um, yeah, his attention to detail is... Yeah, it's second to none. Um, he's pretty impressive what he can do with a bulldozer. And, you know, if something's not 100% right, he won't let it just sit. He'll go and fix it. So, um, yeah, I'd say they're probably the, the two areas that I've learned from Mike DeVries. What about, um, I guess, more broadly in terms of what, what else is the property going to have on it? I guess there's obviously going to be a clubhouse, is like accommodation, is all that sort of stuff in the pipeline. Like I've just, I've got a vision of what the clubhouse is going to look like. I don't know why I do. You know, I've just got this vision of what the clubhouse is going to look yeah. like, but uh, like accommodation and all that sort of stuff. Is that part of the plan? Like, Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I've sort of, I haven't actually seen any photos of, uh, or any you know, sketches or anything of the clubhouse design, but there, there's obviously an architect and they're discussing that right now. There was an original plan, but it was based on the uh, previous permitting and, and uh, you know, development approvals. So um, the clubhouse has moved location slightly. So I think they've got to go through another process of um, you know, getting the design up to spec. But um, yeah, I, I haven't seen any photos of what the clubhouse will look like, but knowing Matt Goggin, um, and his background, he does a bit of property development, I think, and project management. So um, he's sort of in that industry. And um, so I think, you know, I, from the conceptual stuff I've seen that the architect has done, I think it'll be something that's really cool. Um, in terms of cabins and, and accommodation, uh, they're planning for some on-site accommodation. Not sure uh, whether that'll be there from day one, but I think, you know, certainly in the 12 months, post-opening I think something like that will be sorted so um, yeah I think the plan is to have on-site accommodation but uh, it's a little different of a project to Barnboogle in that you can quite easily stay in Hobart yeah. just drive in or even like if you're in Melbourne you could fly in in the morning play the golf course and fly home in the evening so I think you know, that's every massive for it though yeah exactly so you know it could just be a day trip sort of thing if you're from Melbourne so um, it's less important than a place like Barnburg to get that stuff right. We'll get you out of here very shortly, but I, I imagine that this must get your architectural juices flowing, right? Like when, when I go and play a course and then 
I, I, I really love it. I find myself at night on Google Maps looking at the course over and over and going, geez, I don't remember that bit being there or wow, that dog legs a lot more than what it felt like finding other pieces of land that I'm like, geez, that would be really cool if there was a golf course there. Like, yeah. do, are you, are you on Google maps just doing this? Or do you think there's other sites around Australia that, you know, could, could be, you know, something similar to obviously what seven mile is or, or, you know, just a development piece. Like yeah, how, I, how, what's this done for you architecturally? Yeah. I, it's definitely opened my eyes up to kind of how easy it is to build good golf course architecture. Like, the actual building process, if you've got pure sand, like all you need is a bulldozer and an experienced <laughs> operator and you can kind of build golf. Like it's not, it's actually <laughs> not that, it's not that hard. Yeah. Um, it gets harder when you're trying to fit golf on a site that doesn't suit it. Yeah. And so Seven Mile Beach, the site's very, very suitable for golf. So it is pretty easy. Um, it's funny, it, the, obviously, like I said, the, there's potential for maybe two more golf courses down here and obviously we've got topographical maps of um, the land and the lease of where, you know, the extra golf courses might, might go. And so I've been messing around, you know, on, on um, you know, illustrator, Adobe illustrator, just drawing out, Oh, this is a potential routing. Yeah. And Cause okay. the site's just next door. I can just go for a little walk on my lunch break <laughs> and go see, Oh, that hole's pretty good. So I've definitely been messing around, um, you know, figuring out where that might be, but you know, there's, there is, everyone thinks, oh, you know, there's only so many, you know, everyone used to think anyway, this is what I hear that, you know, in the nineties and, um, you know, early two thousands, oh, all the great sites for golf have already been used or found, but, you know, as we both know, the WA coastline, there's yep. a couple hundred, you know, a couple thousand kilometers of pure sand and sand dunes that you build a world-class golf course on. It's just whether it's a actual business, um, you know, reality, whether that something like that could succeed. Um, yeah. I definitely think, I think you could do it. It just, you just need the funding and yeah. Um, but, Got to get the yeah. right investor. Yeah. The funding. And I'm not sure what the water situation is, whether the bore water, you know, would, would do it, but um, yeah, it's not, it's not expensive to build good golf on, on sand. You know, this is this project, this will be one of the best golf courses in Australia when it opens, but it's effectively being built on a shoestring budget. So yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be expensive. I told Clates about Lancelin and obviously you put me onto mm. Lancelin and, and going yeah. up there and I was like blown away by it. And Ledge Point as well was really cool. And I told Clates mm. and I said, well, when you're over here, like, let me know, I'll take the day off work and we'll yeah. play, we'll go up there together. We'll have a beer at the pub and we'll go yeah. and play the, play the golf course and just walk around. Because I still think, I say it to people yeah. all the time, I don't know what the investment would need to be, but mm. like I I think it could be something very special over here. And there's plenty of plenty of spots even, even yeah. here, I think it could be. So. Yeah. Lancelin's just got great bones. I mean, yeah. it's a shame. I I think they're just down to nine holes now, aren't they? They, they used are. to be 18, which yeah. is a shame because I think the nine they lost was arguably, you could say it's better. Yeah. Like it was, it was really, really awesome. So, I mean, it's all out there. It's just cleared, but obviously just it's left to, left to, grow weeds unfortunately yes. but um yeah which is a shame but um could easily be put back i'm sure with a yeah, little bit of money sure. that's right got to find the right investor and uh mm. invest, investing in it for the right reasons as well so mm. but um mate thanks for coming on and having a chat to us for the last hour it's been a lot of fun to obviously chat a bit of world golf but mainly about seven mile which is yeah just an incredible project which 
you're obviously uh, hands got uh, very dirty in and amongst it, which we, we absolutely love, mate. So we're, we'll, I'm sure we'll have you back on in the next few months to get the next update and we might get Matt Goggin on as well to, to give us a yeah. bit of an overview and, and we can't wait to get out there and, and have a site tour at some point and, and yeah. come back and play it when it's all done because, mate, this is, as I say, it's the most exciting project in Australian golf at the moment. So thanks for coming yeah. on, mate, giving us the lowdown. We love it. We love having you no on. No worries. And, uh, mate, you, you're keeping that seat very warm for Marshy and, um, yeah, a couple, couple more times I reckon he might be out and you might have a full-time, <laughs> <laughs> full-time gig. But um, thanks for coming on, mate. Really appreciate it. No worries. Yeah, enjoyed it a lot. Thanks, mate.